We've been in the Gospel of Luke for a long time, uh, and uh, we've been going through a series on the parables. We just have two weeks left, and we'll be looking at the Psalms for the remainder of the summer. So uh, we'll be with the prodigal son this week and next. Uh, this week we'll be looking uh, at the younger son or the younger brother, depending on the perspective of where you're looking at it from. And I really want to approach this text by asking a few questions, uh, some questions that we all ask ourselves all of our life long. Many times we do it unconsciously, uh, and we answer them unconsciously, but there's still questions that we have. Questions like, where did I come from? What's wrong with the world? And what's going to fix the world? And when you answer all these questions, you basically have a framework of life that you live in. When you answer all these questions, you essentially have a vision of what you think the good life is. And it's loaded with imagination. It deals in the world of ideas and passions, and it gives purpose to your life. And to risk being overly simplistic, I think there are two basic frameworks. Sure, they can be nuanced out a little bit. Sure, you can be a combination of both of them. Sure, over the course of your lifetime, you can change on which framework you lean more towards. But I think it's still a helpful way to think through life. And the first view of life I'll call the moral view. This view has got a really strong vision for individual right and individual wrong. It's a vision of the good life as being one of following the rules. What's wrong with the world in this view is that other people have broken the rules. Thus, the way to fix the world is to follow the rules yourself and get others to do the same. And people who have this moralistic view of life, they tend to stay in the same town or region for their entire lives. But there's a second way to view the world. It's what I'll call a relativistic view. And the relativist says, what might be true for you is not necessarily true for me. And what's true for me is not necessarily true for you. And the good life for these people, it, it involves understanding and empathy. And in this view, what's wrong with the world are the condemning types. Thus, if people would just be more inclusive, the world would be a better place. And these kind of people, they often move to the cities. They flee the narrow-minded people and they want to be a part of a more diverse population where the values of empathy and diversity and inclusion can be exercised and improved upon. So which vision do you fall more into today? Did you move to Lexington out of high school for college to leave the place you grew up because the place you grew up was a small town? Now, I know Lexington is no major metropolis for most of the U.S., but for many Kentuckians, Lexington really does serve as our New York City. People move to Lexington for career opportunities, whether it's at UK, and even if it's as a refugee, there's opportunity here. So it's not hard for me to believe that many of us fall into more of the relativistic view. But let's be honest, this is still Kentucky, friends. People were born here, and they have a really hard time believing. So I also think that many of us have a more traditional or moralistic view of life. And it might just seem that these two views, with my brief explanations, are really just the ideological right and the ideological left. They're really just blue and red. But I think that these two views of life have a much longer history than the politics of the U.S., there's something about both these views that can find their roots in the human heart. And that's why the passage we're going to look at these next two weeks is perhaps one of the most famous, if not the most famous, in all of the Bible. 
It's the parable of the prodigal son. There are three main characters. There's the father, there's the younger son, and then there's the older son. The younger son runs off to the city, and he can be seen as the relativist. The older son stays home, and he can be seen as the moralist. And this parable comes on the heels of a string of parables about lost things that can be found. The first one is a lost coin that gets found. The second one is a lost sheep that gets found. And here is the lost son who is found, the prodigal son. So we'll read the intro to the parable, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll read 11 to 24. Luke 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The word of the Lord. So here's Jesus. He's answering the big question about life. Where did I come from? What's wrong with the world? How can it be fixed? By telling this story. And his answers are very, very different from the two views of the good life that I gave in my introduction. What he does is that he depicts the good life of being one of home. Home. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, we'll see that there's a father and he has two sons. They are at home. Surely they're under the same roof. Surely they share the same resources. But home is more than a place. It's a, it's a place where you belong and are accepted. Not because of anything good you've done. In fact, home is where you belong and are accepted in spite of the bad things you've done. It's the place where you're loved unconditionally. That's home. And in verse 12, the younger son shuns home. The younger son shuns being loved unconditionally. And he shuns it by asking for his inheritance early. And from one perspective, it's a little strange, isn't it? He doesn't need his father's resources in order... He doesn't need his inheritance from his father in order to have resources. 
He's got access to all that is his father. So when he asks for his inheritance, it tells us a couple things. The first thing it tells us is that it tells us that he wants independence. See, as long as the younger son is at home, he's got to spend his family's money in a way that is in line with his father's wishes. But if he moves out with his inheritance, then he can spend his money however he wants. So it's not like he's poor and now he's rich. No, he went from being dependent to independent. The second thing that asking for his inheritance early tells us is that he really does prefer his father to be dead. He wants his father's things, but he doesn't want his father. And so the younger son represents all of us who have run off to the city to live as we please. See, when you move to the city, when I moved to Lexington, <laughs> no one knew my last name. No one had ever heard the name Wilmhoff before. When we run off to the city, no one knows if we had a strict family. No one knows if we had a broken family. No one knows the mistakes that we made in our past. Running away allows us to start over and and, and start over with no strings attached. It sounds like perfect freedom. It's, it's like untethering ourselves from all that binds us. So we run off to some far country, usually a city, and before we know it, we spend all we have in an attempt to build a home. And so the desire for independence, it eventually leaves us in a bad spot like it does the younger son. Did you notice where it left him? It left him eating pig's food. He's destitute. And it's a really sad picture of the human condition, isn't it? He's trying to take control of his life, blaze his own path, and then his life spins out of control. Now you might say, well, I'm different than that younger son. He spent all his money on wild living, so of course he ended up destitute. I left home for better reasons, different reasons. But let me suggest to you that whatever you give your life to, whatever you run to, whether it's wild living or something more respectable, it's going to control you in return. For instance, if it's your career, then you'll give your time to it, your creativity, your giftedness, so that you advance and achieve. But if you do, relationships will be really hard. Because you'll just use people for your career and one day you'll find yourself on top of the org chart. But you'll be terribly lonely because you ran over people. Because you neglected the art of cultivating friendships. You neglected nurturing family, family ties. You'll be lonely. Not pig's food, but lonely. Or maybe you'll run away from your family of origin that was so broken or so messed up and you go create your own family life and you have an environment where your spouse will meet all your emotional needs and you'll be a, a great parent who raises perfectly balanced children. You know where you'll end up? Angry. Because your spouse won't meet all your needs. and Your kids won't live up to your standards. You won't be eating pig's food, but you'll be really angry. Or maybe you'll run off and you'll try to have perfectly good looks. Next thing you know, you spend all your money trying to look young forever. The next thing you know, you slipped into an eating disorder and now your health is at great risk. 
It's not pig's food, but it's still misery. And this is where independence gets us every single time. Our independence will leave us helpless, homeless, hungry, and humiliated. Just like this younger son. So what's needed? What's going to get us out of this situation? What did you see in verse 17? In verse 17, the ESV translates it as, But when he came to himself... I like what other translations say a little better. It says, but when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, that's what you and I need. That's the beginning of being cured of our independence. We need to come to our senses. But what does it mean to come to your senses? Well, I think it means two things. The first thing it means is that you need to repent. The second thing you need in order to come to your senses is to know that you have a loving father. Let's talk about repentance. Repentance is an odd thing if you're a moralist. It's an odd thing because you don't have any real keen sense of your own failure. The only failure you know about is from out there. Repentance is something that they should do. Repentance isn't something that necessarily I should do. Repentance is a bit odd. Well, it's also odd for the relativist because the relativist just thinks that God loves you just the way you are. Except for those who condemn people all the time. They need to repent. So to the relativist, repentance is unnecessary. Yet for Jesus, the first way to fixing what has gone wrong is to repent. It's absolutely central. And and look what his repentance looks like, starting in verse 18. He's, He's talking to himself. He's rehearsing what he's going to say when he sees his old man. And he acknowledges that He caused a relational fracture. He doesn't say, I'm sorry I stole your money. He realizes that something deeper has gone on than just a violation. So he looks underneath of it. He looks underneath his violation and he realizes that he has broken his father's heart. And when he does, he's on his road to sanity. He's saying, I've been so blind. I've been so ungrateful. Those are the good parts about his repentance here when he's talking to himself. But look how he's thinking in verse 19. He thinks that his worthiness to be his father's son has something to do with what he does. And since he's done bad things, he's allowing himself to think that he must not be considered a son any longer. He wants to be treated like a servant instead. Do you see that? See, and if he puts himself as a, certain, as a servant, he can begin to work hard. He can pay back his father for all the money he's wasted. But what he's doing is that he's letting his badness interfere with his perception of being his father's son. So his repentance is a mixed bag. And it's going to take more than repentance to get him home. He's also going to need to know that he's got a loving father, and that's exactly what he has. And you can see his loving father. We get some clues. The first clue is that he's waiting on the front porch. The second clue is that he doesn't require repentance. (laughs) And the third one is his father doesn't condemn him. You see him on the front porch. The son didn't even get to the front door and knock on it. 
His father met him halfway down the driveway. His father had been keeping his eyes glued on the horizon, hoping that his son would return home. And this shows us that his father knew that his son was lost, but his son wasn't forgotten. And look at when he repents. Look at the sequence here. You've got the gestures of affection, the, the, the kiss and the embrace of the father, and you also have the repentance. Which comes first? Do you see that? The gestures of affection comes first. The father embraced and kissed the son before the son could get a word of repentance out. So that means that the love of God is not caused by our repentance. But our repentance is caused by the love of God. Let me say it again. The love of God is not caused by our repentance. In other words, God doesn't begin to love you when you become sorry. You become sorry when you see how much God loves you. That's how a loving father operates. The third clue we have is the extra, we see the extravagance of the father's love and his lack of condemnation. The father doesn't put his son on probation. He doesn't make his son pledge to do better. He doesn't shame his son for his greediness or his poor decisions. He doesn't give him some irritating advice about the future. None of it. All we see is the joy of a loving father. And I think the son knew his father was like this. He knew that when he was in the big pen, he knew it would be safe for him to go home. I don't think he was surprised that his father ran up along the road. I don't think he was surprised that he couldn't get his apology out before he got kissed and embraced. I think he had a memory of his loving father that caused his repentance. See, when you got these two things, genuine repentance and a loving father, then you can be restored to home. You can have this unconditional belonging and acceptance. And that's exactly what the younger son got. You see what he got? A robe, he got a ring, he got shoes, and he got a feast. All being tangible signs of his unqualified acceptance. He's restored back to full honor, almost as if nothing ever happened. So why did Jesus tell this story? Why do you and I need this story this morning? Well, the first reason is that I think Jesus told this story so that we would know how much we're loved. Do you know how much the Father loves you? He loves you so much that he sent Jesus to be your Savior. He loved you so much that he's calling you back from your far country of sin. He loves you so much that he's looking for you. His eyes are glued on the horizon. He's longing to receive you. So will you come into the Father's love this morning for the first time or the 500th time? Will you confess that you're more lost than you ever wanted to admit. Maybe nobody else knows. Maybe it looks terribly respectable. But on the inside, you know. You're just eating pig's food. Well, Jesus loves to take you back. That's the first reason he told this story. The second one is so that we would never count anyone as being too far gone as to receive grace. See, loving people is so messy. And that's why we take the safe route and we keep our distance. 
Instead, with messy people, we put them to the test. We see if their walk's going to match their talk before we get involved. But here's the question. Why do we have higher standards than God does? Well, let me tell you, your standards will keep you from experiencing God. Because you could be used as his instrument with messy people, you know. Let me read a story that I came across this week. It reads like this. It says, after years of degenerate living and sampling a catalog of sinful lifestyles, Simon tried to take his life. One night, half a continent from home and his Christian parents, he stumbled into an all-night laundry. He picked up a piece of paper and he scribbled a suicide note. He tucked it in his back pocket. He went out to the parking lot. And in the parking lot, he took a length of rubber hose. He used it for a tourniquet when he shot heroin, but tonight he's going to tie it around his neck and hang himself from a luggage rack of a parked car. He was unsuccessful. He wakes up in the ER. He recovers and he goes home. And a little over a year later, he had a real and profound experience with Jesus. And shortly after this experience with Jesus, he was sorting through his things and to his amazement, he finds this suicide note. He turned it over and he realized that he had written on a Christian tract that was about the prodigal son. And here's what he said. That spoke to me. It told me that even at my lowest point in my life, I hadn't been able to escape the love of Jesus. Now those are all the details I know about this story. But it caused me to ask a lot of questions. I wonder if his parents in the church he grew up in was praying for him. I wonder if one of his drug-abusing friends got clean before he did, shared their conversion story with him, and that became a seed that took root and grew into his own experience with Jesus. It made me wonder if this guy, Simon, walked into Narcotics Anonymous meeting after being, shortly after being in the ER, and at that NA meeting, he meets a Christian who shares the gospel with him. Don't you want to be on the front row of seeing sinners redeemed like that? I hope you do. Because I want our church to be a place where prodigals come home. My hope is that there are three or four people in your life. They're a mess. They're living wild. They're eating pig's food. They have no interest in church. And that you're coming alongside of them. You're praying for them. You're faithful to love them. You're looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them. And I think if our church is like that, I think we'll see some of them come to their senses. I think we'll see some of them come home and we'll see the Father run out to them and kiss them and embrace them, in part because you never gave up on them. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to see ourselves in the prodigal. Our lives may not look that messy, but we know on the inside that we are a mess. There's this anger, there's this anxiety, there's this loneliness. It's leaving us miserable. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, see uh, that we can take some ownership of that. And Lord, that you're not going to shame us when we come home. (laughs) But Lord, you're going to celebrate with us. Oh Lord, I pray that we would experience the riches of your grace this morning. In Christ's name, amen.